So I wonder when you have really wanted something, uh, what lengths you've gone through or gone to to get what you really want. Uh, I'm pretty sure everyone in this room wants something, uh, you know, something they desperately desire, something they're aiming for, something they're uh, trying to achieve. Uh, the reality, though, is in order for us to get what we want, generally we have to pay a price. You know, and as, as I think about that, I'm often amazed at the price that some people will pay to get what they want. Uh, you know, I think of sports stars who sacrifice so much. You know, right now, if I think about Ronaldo, probably one of the greatest current soccer players, when you read stories and you listen to interviews of everything he gave up in order to become as successful as he currently is, uh, he gave up friendships. He gave up relationships. He, he gave up a whole bunch of stuff just to become as good as he is. In fact, the story is told countless times that when he was in his early days of training, often after training was finished and, and soccer practice or football is actually what it is, but you know, we call it soccer. And so after soccer practice, he would stay for like two hours just working on free kicks you know, everybody else has gone off to, to wherever they're going, to parties, to stuff. And he's like, no, I want to be great. This is the price I'm going to pay to get what I want. A couple of weeks ago, I read about Christian Bale, one of the uh, A-list celebrity actors. And Christian Bale put his body through extreme, uh, through the paces for a couple of his uh, parts that he played. In fact, in the space of five movies, uh, this just blows me away. For his first movie, Bale lost 30 kilograms for one movie. And then when that movie was finished, he put on 30 kilograms for his next movie. And then he lost 15 kilograms for his next movie. And then put on 20 kilograms for the next one. And then put an extra 20 kilograms for the next one. That's like a span of 70 kilograms up and down. I mean, I don't think the human body is supposed to go through that. But here's somebody who thought about, this is something I want. This is what I will do. This is the price I will pay to get what I want. Now, I've never done something as crazy as that. But I did remember that when I was in about grade 10, there was this girl that I really liked. It wasn't Cindy. It was a girl I'd met at a kind of inter-school thing. And I thought she liked me. And so I hopped on my bicycle quite literally and cycled all the way to her house. Now, I know some of you are going, so what? Well, that would be like me cycling from here to Granville Island. And I, yeah, I, I wanted to see this young lady. And I put the effort in. And what made it terrible was she didn't even give me a kiss at the end of that. <laughs> Apparently, the Rolling Stones are correct. You can't always get what you want. And today, as we journey through Acts and as we continue in the book of Acts, the gospel on the ground, and we're going to look at two people. Just like last week, we compared two people and we had a, a good example of a bad one. Today, again, we're going to compare two people. And what did these two people do when confronted with the gospel, when confronted with Jesus? And in a sense, what did these two people do to get what they really wanted. 
And we're not going to read through the entire chapter of Acts 8. Acts chapter 8 is 40 verses long, and so it'll take a little while to try and read through all of that. But I really would encourage you when you get some time, maybe this afternoon or during this coming week, have a read through Acts chapter 8. We're going to go through a couple of portions this morning. And of course, we need to begin with the context. What's going on in Acts chapter 8? What's the story? What's that meta-narrative? What's that overarching story of what's taking place? So if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn to Acts chapter 8, whether on the phone, whether on the paper Bible in front of you, uh, and it will be up on the screen as well. So I'm going to invite you to read with me as we read Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. Saul approved of their killing him. That's the the stoning of Stephen before that. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. And so that's kind of the introduction. That's the context of what's taking place. There's this persecution that has broken out against disciples of Jesus Christ. This fledgling movement of the faith as people come to Christ, well, they're getting persecuted for that. Their faith in Jesus and their continued proclamation of the death, burial, and resurrection, their witness to the gospel, leads them to being persecuted. And notice, if we jump all the way back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus says to his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And now we see this is part of how the church moved to the ends of the earth. It was through persecution. And I wonder if some of those early Christians, those early disciples, didn't necessarily think to themselves, wait a minute. I've got a sticker up on my fridge that says the safest place to be is in the center of the will of God. And that's a joke, by the way, because it's not. But I can imagine them sitting going, we're doing what we've been commanded. Why is there this persecution? Why are we being attacked for our faith? Well, Jesus said to them, all the way back in John chapter 15, Jesus said, Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Jesus warned his disciples, faith in me will lead to persecution. Jesus' brother James echoes this in James chapter 1. And he goes a step further. He says, consider it pure joy. When you face trials of many kinds, consider it joy when you are persecuted for the gospel, when you're persecuted for Jesus' sake. And so in Acts chapter 8, as we read this, really what we're reading is the truth that the disciples have been told. Faith in Jesus is not going to lead to a cushy, comfortable, happy, prosperous life. No, faith in Jesus Christ is going to lead to persecution. There will be trouble. There will be trials. In fact, as somebody once said, if you've never come face to face with the devil, it's possibly because you're going in the same direction as him. And so this is what the disciples discover. There is persecution. So that's the, the kind of the meta-narrative. That's the whole story. 
But, but in that story, we read of Philip in a moment, who is sent out as part of that persecution. Uh, Philip was a deacon in the church. He wasn't an apostle. Uh, he wasn't an elder or anything like that. He was simply a servant in that early church. If you've still got your Bibles open, read with me in Acts chapter 8, verses 4 to 8. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. So this is the sub-story of Acts chapter 8. That meta-narrative is persecution and scattering, and now we have the small story within that. And Philip has gone down again in, in response to Jesus' command, and here he finds himself in Samaria, this place, and he begins preaching the gospel. And in the midst of preaching the gospel, so the Holy Spirit uses him and indeed does some incredible things through him. There's miracles, there's, there's signs and wonders, there's clearly power at work. And so with, with Peter doing that, sorry, with Philip doing that and going in, this is where we get to the crux of Acts chapter 8. We meet two people, uh, two people who see something and, and believe, this is what I want, this is what I need. And we see two responses to the gospel. And just like last week, yes, one example is a good example, one example is a bad example. Really, Luke puts it before us, and he gives us these examples, and he says, how will you respond? What will you do with Jesus Christ? The first person we meet is a guy by the name of Simon. And in fact, in the Bible, there will be a little heading, Simon the Sorcerer. And Simon, as we're obviously going to compare Simon with the eunuch in a moment as we'll get there, I do need to compare Simon with Philip just briefly. So Philip is the deacon who's gone down, he's proclaiming, he's preaching. And of course, Philip and Simon are both competing for the same audience, the same audience in Samaria. Simon had a head start because he's been there, and so Philip arrives. And I love the fact that Luke compares these two from around verse uh, 9 through to about verse 13. And Luke shows us that Simon works wonders, that Simon the sorcerer, as does Philip, the Christian. Simon draws crowds, Philip draws crowds. Simon amazes, Philip amazes people. Simon claims to have great power, Philip heals in great power of the Holy Spirit. And so Philip is this evangelist who comes into Samaria. And sometimes we read over that and we forget the incredible hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Jews hated the Samaritans. In fact, the Jews of that day had a prayer where in all seriousness, they prayed to God and they prayed, God, would you forget the Samaritans in the resurrection? Like, how much do you have to hate a people group to say, hey, God, when you resurrect everyone, just forget them. And so Philip goes to these people. 
And Philip's in the middle of this place with these hated foreigners, and Philip is proclaiming the gospel. Philip is touching the lepers. Philip is involved in people's lives, and he's proclaiming and he's preaching. Man, it must have been electrifying. I wonder if some of the Samaritans didn't sort of go, wait a minute, you're Jewish. What on earth are you doing here preaching to us? And it's such a powerful story of, of just God's ability to break through those walls that we build up, for God to reach and, and for God to touch all people. And so Philip is there, and he's, he's with all these people. And he encounters Simon, this magician who, who has a hold on the people. In fact, we're not going to read it, but in verse 10 and 11, we read about this grip that Simon the sorcerer had over the Samaritans. They thought that there was something great about him. They thought that he was a god or that he had the power of God, and they called him great. But as we read through and we find out a little bit more about Simon, we see that Simon is a pretender and a spender. Simon is a pretender and a spender. And why I say that is because the God, uh, Luke records for us that Simon is a believer. Simon's even being baptized. But there's something wrong here because Simon seems to be obsessed with Philip's ability. Simon looks at Philip and the healing work that Philip is doing, and Simon is obsessed with this power. Simon wants that power. It's like he believed in the miracles, but didn't truly believe in the master. So even though he claims to be a believer, even though he's been baptized, it's very clear there's no heart change in Simon. He's checked off all the boxes because he thinks that will get him what he wants, that will get him the power, but there's no change within his heart. In fact, when I, read, when I read the life of Simon, I hear Jesus' words in the Gospels. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will be welcomed into my presence. Simon has built up this reputation of amazing people with his magic, with his powers. In fact, the, the really sad thing about Simon the sorcerer is we read in the historian's accounts from about a century later, a guy by the name of Justin Martyr. And Justin Martyr speaks about Simon. Evidently, Simon's heart was so unchanged that Simon starts to call himself a god. And there's a, there's a statue built in Simon's honor that calls him this god, this man of great power. In fact, the inscription to the statue says, To the holy God, Simon. It seems like Simon's heart was never changed. And Simon was simply a pretender of the faith. But not only a pretender, Simon is a spender. Simon doesn't understand the inherent limits of money. He doesn't understand the true gift of grace in God. And the reason I say that is because as Philip preaches and as Philip heals and as Philip does these incredible things, news gets to Jerusalem. And so some of the apostles come down to Samaria. And when the apostles get there, in fact, let's read this in, in Acts chapter 8, verse 18 to 19. 
When the apostles get there, they pray over people and the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they receive the Holy Spirit. And we read in verse 18, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Simon saw this work, and, and he doesn't say, can I have this Holy Spirit? Uh, can you pray for me that the Holy Spirit would come upon me and change me? No, Simon says, hey, here's some cash. Give me that power. Let me be able to do these signs and wonders. And there's a world of difference between knowing the power of God and knowing God. There's a big difference between knowing what the Holy Spirit can do and knowing the Holy Spirit within us. And it's very clear that Simon does not know. He has this misunderstanding, and Simon thinks that it's his money that can, can help him. It's his money, and he likes to control what's going on because he wants people to look at him. He wants people to say, look how great you are. It's almost like Simon has never heard what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus said, No one can serve two masters. For either they will hate the one and love the other, or will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And when God and money collide, there's always a collision. One of them will come out on top. You know, in, in contrast, if I look just at Peter versus Simon, Remember what we said a couple of weeks ago when Peter goes up to the temple and the layman kind of is asking for money and Peter replies, silver and gold have I none, but in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And he understands money isn't going to help you. Money isn't going to make any difference. It's the Holy Spirit. And sadly, Simon wants to monetize this work. I don't know how many of you have seen uh, the movie The Greatest Showman. And I'm sorry that I'm about to bitterly disappoint you because it is one of my children's favorite movies. Uh, it's a great movie. If, if you haven't seen The Greatest Showman, it's this incredible movie. Uh, it's a musical, so yes, just be warned. Um, and it tells the story of P.T. Barnum. And P.T. Barnum, who went from nothing really and, and really went from poverty to become this great circus owner and this greatest showman. And of course, it's, it's based on P.T. Barnum, the individual. So it's, in a sense, a real story. P.T. Barnum lived in the same time as, um, oh, how can I go blank on that? Um, P.T. Barnum lived in the same time as Charles Spurgeon. You've all heard of Charles Spurgeon, preacher. And P.T. Barnum understood that Spurgeon could draw a huge crowd. In fact, Spurgeon could sometimes draw crowds of close to 10,000 people as he preached the gospel. So P.T. Barnum sent a letter to Spurgeon, and he invited Spurgeon to come and preach. And he said to Spurgeon, you can have whatever you want. I can give you sideshows, I can give you musicians, I can put everything on place, uh, and then you can speak, you can speak for as long as you want, you can speak for as short as you want. The only thing is, I will take the profits of the night, but here's, here's to sweeten the deal, I will give you $1,000 per 
speaking engagement. Now, remember, this is like a century ago. $1,000 was a lot of money. This is a legit thing that Barnum offered to Spurgeon. Spurgeon sent him back a letter. Dear Mr. Barnum, thank you for your kind invitation to lecture in your circus tents in America. You will find my answer in Acts 13, verse 10. Very sincerely yours, Charles H. Spurgeon. And I know you're all wondering, what does Acts 13, verse 10 say? Acts 13, verse 10. You son of the devil. <laughs> you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. Will you, stop, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? People spoke to each other in very different ways a century ago. I mean, that's just, that's crazy. But you see, Spurgeon understood. Spurgeon knew exactly what Barnum was doing. Spurgeon knew Barnum had no concern for the gospel. Barnum had no concern for the message of Jesus Christ. Barnum saw something that drew a crowd, and he said, I want in on that. I can make money. And you know what? I'm going to offer Spurgeon and if you've ever seen The Greatest Showman, I'm totally envisioning Barnum having a singing duel with Spurgeon as he offers him this deal. And Spurgeon goes, no. No, the gospel is not for sale. <laughs> the gospel isn't to make you a prophet. The gospel is the free gift of grace in Jesus Christ. And Spurgeon would preach and teach as often as he could without regard for money. You see, if Christianity gets into the hands of the Simons of the world, church becomes nothing more than, than a sales pitch to get you to buy some timeshare. That's not the gospel. The power of God is not a commodity on the stock exchange. And that's what Simon thought. The only solution is what Philip says in Acts chapter 8, verse 22 to 23. Acts 8, 22. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Repent. Repent of this bitterness. Repent of this, this misaligned understanding. Repent of wanting to make it about you and, and wanting to get everything for yourself. Wanting this power. Repent, turn to Jesus. And it's a message that goes out to all of us. Repent, renounce our former way of thinking. Renounce our sin and make every effort to live for God. You know, it's interesting, in the very next verse, Simon asks them to pray for him. He says, pray for me that what you've said doesn't happen. And there's nothing wrong with asking people to pray for you. But we have to pray ourselves. And sadly, we know the rest of Simon's story. Simon did not pray for himself. Simon's heart was not changed. History shows that he did not repent. Simon is a good example of a bad one. So what example should we emulate? Well, this is the second character we get introduced to in Acts chapter 8. It's the Ethiopian eunuch. Read with me in Acts 8 from verse 26 to 29. 
Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandaki, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to the chariot and stay near to it. it. And so we, we suddenly get introduced to another character. We've had Simon the sorcerer. Now we have this unnamed Ethiopian eunuch. This man has great authority. He's in charge of the full treasury of the queen. Uh, he, he has power. He has influence. He has prestige. Uh, he, he's a eunuch, which means he's been emasculated for the purpose of serving without distraction. He's evidently a worshiper of God because he's coming from Jerusalem, having gone there to worship. We don't know what celebration or what festival, but he's down there. He's worshiping. And now he's reading the scroll of, of Isaiah. And of course, we can't say with 100% certainty, but most scholars believe that this Ethiopian eunuch was, in fact, an African man. And I love, almost as a little aside there, I love the fact that the gospel crosses all these cultures and crosses all these boundaries. Philip has just gone down to Samaria, this hated and despised people group. But in the same time, the gospel is going out across all nations. It's that, that glimpse of what God told Abraham, that through you all the nations will be blessed. It's that image we see in Revelation of a great multitude of people standing before the throne worshiping God from every tribe, every tongue. It's a whole mix of everyone. God doesn't worry about the externals we worry about. God simply is moving and doing something incredible. And so this Ethiopian, is, he's a student of the Scriptures, He's reading the scroll from Isaiah, and we know that he doesn't understand everything. In fact, let's pick it up from verse 30. Acts chapter 8 and verse 30. And then Philip ran up to the chariots and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I? He said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This was the passage of Scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Philip, in, in obedience to the Holy Spirit, follows the prompting of the Holy Spirit, finds himself next to this chariot and hears him reading out. And I love just the simple, honest question that Philip asks. It's a great example for us. We don't always have to know all the answers. We don't always have to preach to people. We can just ask questions humbly. And that's what Philip does. He says, do you understand what you're reading? And of course, the Ethiopian eunuch basically says, no. I have no clue as I'm reading what we know as Isaiah 53, verse 7 to 8. 
And his question's an honest, legitimate question. Is Isaiah talking about himself, or is he talking about someone else? And so Philip gives him that straight answer. Philip proclaims the gospel beginning with that passage and moving through the scriptures. Philip explains that this passage is speaking about Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, God in the flesh who came to earth, lived a sinless, spotless life, who was crucified for our sins, who was buried, and three days later who rose again and is now seated at the right hand of God in glory. And he's in task this job of witnessing to that to us and to those who believe. And so Philip simply teaches that. And as Philip's speaking, evidently the Holy Spirit stirs within this eunuch's heart because the eunuch, as they're going past some water, says, hey, here's a body of water. What's stopping me from being baptized? Now, in your Bible, you may not have Acts chapter 8, verse 37, because not all of the manuscripts include that verse. But Acts 8, 37 in some manuscripts says, Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. The eunuch answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so his faith and declaration lead to his baptism. You know, when I read through Scripture, when I read through the Gospels, when I read through the New Testament, those who were baptized did not need to know all the answers. They did not need to know every little bit of doctrine. All they needed was that affirmation verbally and within their heart that I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And the Bible says, repent, believe, and be baptized. And without making you feel guilty if you've never been baptized and you're a Christian, we've got water going next week. You should really think about getting baptized. So how do we, how do we conclude as we read through Acts chapter 8? Acts chapter 8 gives two examples. It gives two people for us to consider, to have a look at how they responded and to have a look at what they did with what they thought they wanted to have. Simon the sorcerer and the unknown, unnamed Ethiopian eunuch. Both hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. That gospel that says there is salvation for all who repent of their sin and believe that Jesus is the Savior. One is not changed and does not repent, and we know his story. One is changed and does repent. Friends, that same gospel invitation is offered to each and every one of us. And there comes a point in each and every one of our lives where we have to decide what will we do with Jesus Christ. What will we do with this gospel of grace, this gift of life in believing? Will we repent and believe or will we reject? If you've never made that decision, I implore you, choose this day. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. And it might be that you want to pray that prayer. You just don't know how to pray for yourself. You don't have to pray a long-winded prayer or anything like that. You can simply pray in your heart and say this, Jesus, I believe that you are God and you are the Savior 
of the world. I repent of my sin and I turn to you for life. Please come into my life and rule as Lord. Holy Spirit, help me to walk in obedience to my Savior. It's as simple as that. Jesus, I pray this morning, as we are confronted with that gospel message, life in the Messiah, the forgiveness of sins, eternal life in the presence of our Heavenly Father, Oh, God, I pray that you would help us to respond. Let our hearts be changed. May we truly repent of our sin. And may we choose to receive life in Jesus Christ. We know we're not perfect. We know we're going to get things wrong. We know we're going to mess up over and over. God, I, I pray, would you help by your Holy Spirit, help us to walk in that trajectory that leads towards you to evermore becoming more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, when I read an account like this and we, we look at Simon and we look at the eunuch, I'm reminded that sometimes we forget about Philip in the middle of all of this. A mere servant in the church who because of persecution fled and found himself in the middle of a people group despised by his nationality. Yet he didn't see that as a curse. He saw that as an opportunity to preach. God, would you help us, wherever we might find ourselves, in family, in friendship circles, at work, at school, wherever, may we have the boldness of Philip to ask questions and to proclaim Jesus Christ so that ultimately we might see people turn to you and we might rejoice together as people go through that water of baptism, making their public declaration of faith in you. Oh God, may we follow you. May we serve you. Because you're all we need. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.